Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Oliver Berkman. Oliver is a feature writer for The Guardian, where he wrote a long-running weekly column on psychology. He's also written for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and other publications. He's also written a few books. Most recently, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which is a book that I really loved. It is certainly not your usual time management book and uh, touches upon some of the deepest questions in life and in what sense should we even be thinking about time as a resource. Anyway, we get into many aspects of this. We talk about our relationship to time, the perils of efficiency, being versus becoming, parenting and childhood, the notion of work-life balance, the loss of leisure, the trap of planning, social isolation, the idea of a modern Sabbath, and other topics. Anyway, this conversation is all too timely as we careen into December here, the end of the year being the time where many of us think about reprioritizing things. Just how did we spend this year that seemed like it was four months long? So I hope you find the conversation useful. And now I bring you Oliver Berkman. I'm here with Oliver Berkman. Oliver, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for inviting me. So I'm not aware if we've ever met. I think you've interviewed me once or twice, but uh, tell me our history together. (laughs) I think that's right. I think that we... uh... Haven't ever met. I fairly recently consulted you for a piece that I was writing for The Guardian on, uh, on free will. That was our most recent uh, interaction, I think. Yeah, yeah. But w- was there a time before that as well? You know, there might have been a time before that when we exchanged less friendly words via Twitter, which tends to do that to oh, people. All right. Well, um, apologies I, uh, for anything back, untoward back I might day. have done. No, yeah. no, I'm sure it was me being, uh, me being uh, impertinent. Anyway. It's all in the past. <laughs> well, great to turn the tables on you and to be interviewing you about your book, the title of which is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And it's really a, it's a fantastic book. It's the, we'll, we'll get into the way in which it breaks the mold for the topic of time management. But before we do, can you summarize your background as a writer and journalist and just how you came to this topic? Sure. I worked for a very long time on the staff, and then as a freelance contracted person for The Guardian. Uh, one of the things I did for many years, just until a couple of years ago, was to write a weekly column on, I guess, self-help culture, the science of happiness, productivity, all that kind of hmm. that whole sector. And, um, you know, on the one hand, this is an amazing opportunity to explore all sorts of fascinating modalities and research and the rest of it. I think it probably also served as a slightly, as, an, as a sort of an enabler <laughs> of various problematic uh, tendencies in myself. You know, if you're sort of, if you're the kind of person who wants to spend your, your life exploring methods of productivity rather than actually getting on with things and being productive, then it's great to be able to have the excuse that you're mm-hmm. doing, doing it for work purposes. So in a way, this book was sort of came out the other end of that. It was like after spending many years trying to find the, the perfect productivity technique or the perfect time management technique and, uh, and, and failing. <laughs> so before we jump into the iconoclastic and uh, heretical take you have on this topic, maybe we should just at the outset say whatever can be said in support of kind of the, the obvious virtues of time management. I mean, we're just acknowledging the problem and, you know, reclaiming whatever baby is in that bathwater. What do you think actually survives scrutiny here in terms of the, the standard advice? Well, clearly time management matters. Uh, I try to make the case, I think, that it matters even more than the people who have promoted mm. that sort of standard version would, would claim. It, it's obviously, you know, it, ha- it has this reputation as a slightly sort of narrow topic, but it's actually, on some level, surely the whole of life is the whole challenge of constructing a meaningful life is a question of is a question of time management. And then I would say that 
there's definitely some room for becoming more efficient and more strategic. And, and there are things that we all do in our days that we could do in, in less time uh, and, uh, and, and make savings around the edges in, in that way. I have plenty to say that's critical about that sort of efficiency and optimization-based approach to, to using one's time. But I think that, you know, there's no doubt that there are ways of organizing your daily schedule that will see you spend less time switching between, you know, less time on email than you otherwise would or more time on the things that you truly care about. So it's certainly not all, all nonsense. Mm. Yeah, there's, uh, maybe we, we can start with one of the paradoxes or perverse dynamics here where the focus on efficiency leads strangely to a subversion of one's deeper priorities. There's so many ways into this that you you explore in your book, but um, maybe maybe this we can start with this all too common impulse of feeling the need to quote clear the decks before one can actually do the important stuff, and so much of time management it amounts to recommendations around this kind of thing: the the, the, the doing things more efficiently, getting one's to do list truly clear, getting to inbox zero. What's wrong with the level of focus when one approaches it that way? I mean, I think we're all familiar with this problem. It's just that we don't always put a name to it or sort of see it in objective terms. But this general problem is, I think, is that if you, if you focus on efficiency as the governing value in your personal use of time. And I think this probably applies to all sorts of other systems as well. It's recognized in those other contexts. All else being equal, a more efficient system will simply attract and process more inputs. If you get really good at getting through your email, you will receive more email because you will reply to people at a greater tempo, at a faster tempo, and those replies will generate replies and you'll develop a reputation in your organization as someone who's responsive to email so more people will be it'll be worth their while to send you email so that's just one example but you know the the, this is parkinson's law the idea that the the work expands to fill the time available for its completion it's it's just this basic problem that efficiency pursued as the governing value leads to more stuff coming in that you have to process and for other reasons that i can talk about i think it also leads to a lower lower quality of stuff right it 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 focuses you on spending more and more time on the things that you don't particularly value and so you know if you take that approach of trying to clear the decks before you get round to the important stuff firstly the decks will never be clear anyway because of the world we live in is you know we are finite and the potential number of little things to do is effectively infinite and Secondly, the act of trying to clear the decks increases the number of the th- of things on the decks. So it's a very sort of it's a very sort of counterintuitive stance that is required, I think, to to sort of allow the decks to be too full and to sort of allow the feeling of of being overwhelmed to exist, and nonetheless, at the same time, to spend you know an hour or the first part of the day or whatever on on the thing that you that you really want to prioritize it's not it's not how we're seems to be it's not how we're conditioned to uh to approach the feeling of being overwhelmed yeah there seems to be this psychological quirk at the bottom of all of this which is we we don't want to admit the fundamental limits of what we can do i mean just the basic fact that doing any one thing is synonymous with not doing an infinite number of things. So if you're going to spend an hour reading a book, you're spending that hour, if in fact you are <laughs> merely reading that book and not doing 10 other things with your phone, there are an infinite number of things you're neglecting to do for that full hour. And in some sense, we don't want to admit this to ourselves, and we want to live with the illusion that if we could just control things better than we, we've been to date, we could do more or less everything that we, we want to do, should do, feel we must do. And what that allows for is a, or what that encourages is a failure to 
triage at the first opportunity to admit to yourself, okay, there's, I've got 24 hours in the day. I will never have a longer day than that. And therefore, if I'm not doing these most important things first, they're vulnerable to my doing far less important, less rewarding things in the meantime. And this is something you explore uh, at various points in the book. The embrace of, of our limitation, the, the recognition that this finite resource of attention allows us to live with, you know, as you say, the decks not being remotely clear and focus on the most important stuff, whereas actually not acknowledging the limitations causes us to just respond to the the email we need never have responded to uh, in preference for that most important thing that is yet, yet, once again, not getting touched today. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, for me, this is the 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 core of it all this this deep discomfort that we have with with confronting how limited we are not just in terms of quantity of time i think but also control over the unfolding of time mm-hmm. you know the degree to which we are just rafts on the on the white waters of of the river of time and have really relatively little control over how things go and the the wonderfully alluring thing about chasing this this promise of total productivity, total optimization, being completely in control and having everything sorted out at last, it never comes because yeah, it would entail it would entail being non-limited when when in fact we are limited. But there's always the sense that it might just be around the corner, might just be in the future, and that was my experience for years as a so total sort of you know paid up productivity geek it was not that i had everything working brilliantly and could do everything that was thrown at me but it was always like it was maybe only a few weeks away <laughs> that i would have this this system set up and everything would be perfect so there's this kind of constant future allure that you're eventually going to get your time sorted out which really just means break through the limitations of the human condition with respect to time and because it's always feels like it's coming right that's a that's a reason not to face the discomfort that would be entailed by saying, okay, it's never coming. Uh, I am going to end up neglecting in this life huge numbers of things that matter and that would have been a legitimate use of my time, along with lots of other less meaningful things. I'm going to end up neglecting lots of them. It's going to happen whatever I do. And so I've, at some point, I've just got to apply myself to a few things that seem like the most important, the most important mm. Yeah, there's there's this piece of corporate speak that has worked its way into my vocabulary, despite my best intentions. <laughs> and I find that myself using this phrase a lot because it does capture this ever-present problem, and it's, it's the phrase opportunity cost. And it comes down to this, the need to decide. I mean, you, you actually break open the etymology of the word decide in your book from the Latin to cut off. I mean, to decide what to do is, by definition, to circumscribe something and separate it from everything that it's not. And I guess there's something on the other side of this. There is something to having a carefree attitude, too, and just just allowing yourself to wander within certain limits and discover what happens of itself. But even that kind of experience needs to be prioritized given the, the world in which we live. So there, inevitably, we have to confront this fact that we, to not decide is also a, to make some sort of decision, you know, by default, you're, you're going to be just left with, with, a, with whatever habit pattern is being played upon by circumstance. So it seems to me that the, the focus for making any kind of change in the quality of one's life has to be around this variable of deciding what it is that's really worth your time and attention and noticing all the ways in which your life is buffeting you away from those priorities. And it takes this continuous act of recalibration because as much as we may be intellectually aware of the finiteness of life and the the transitoriness of everything, in some sense, we're really not aware of it. We're not emotionally aware of it so much of the time. And to live a life that you really can't regret at the, you know, at the end of any given day or year or at the end of your life, 
I think has got to entail succeeding more and more at this choice point of granting your attention to all those things that uh, most merit it. Absolutely. I mean, I think I'd push it even a bit further and say it isn't only about making sure that you only focus on what matters the most to you, but, but it's almost about accepting that quite a few things that might be among the things that matter the most to you won't make the mm-hmm. cut either, because there's just no reason in our situation to assume that th- the quantity of things that matter fit comfortably <laughs> inside the yeah. available time. Now, I mean, it is a very sort of, it's a big responsibility and it's a very sort of, um, it's a daunting thought. But I do also think there's something deeply liberating about it, right? It's the, it's the liberation of, of seeing that something you were trying to do was completely impossible. And given that it was completely impossible, given that there was no hope ever of sort of escaping the terms and conditions of the human situation, you don't need to fight that. And you can sort of relax into the situation a bit. I think there is something mm. very sort of, something that's, it, it sort of stops life. It, it gets rid of the idea that like life is a problem, that there's already a sort of a yeah. problem that you've got to solve just through, just through being here. You, you mentioned meditation briefly in the book, but I forget what your background is with it, because it, it's, it's obviously very informative of how I see this issue. What, what has been your experience with meditation? I have had a sort of patchy practice for many years, done a couple of five-day, week-long or so retreats at, at the Insight Meditation Society. Oh, nice. Uh, followed a lot of your writing on it and, uh, and the Waking Up app. So I'm very, very interested, but I feel um, slightly sheepish when I get involved in claiming that I'm any kind of active, regular mm-hmm. meditator, because that would be dishonest. But I think that, I mean, I do think that a lot of these ideas have touch points with, with a lot of Buddhist ideas, for sure. In the possibility of, of relief that you just uh, described, and that comes by acknowledging the, the endlessness of experience, right? You're never going to actually accomplish everything, not only everything that you might do, but everything that even upon final analysis you would you would think is truly important and truly rewarding. You know, there's there's an infinite amount of that too, potentially. Right. Just like there's, you know, a functionally infinite number of good books to read. Once you sort of give up the the war here, I mean you just give up hope, you recognize that there's just um on some level there's just more can't be the point because more is is always dwarfed by everything you can't do, and you know probably more important, everything you do do doesn't it doesn't really accrue in quite the way that you expect. I mean, we, we you know you look back at all of your past experience now, which is just a memory, and it is by its very nature evanescent. I mean, it's just you can't you can't grab hold of it. You can just keep mulling it over in by thinking about it so it it never quite lands and uh it's not to say that you know you you don't learn things and develop new skills and and uh, develop uh new opportunities for life in the present based on past experience but the satisfaction of satisfaction doesn't last in quite the way we sense it will by default and yet we we rarely turn the same understanding on the future and recognize that all of these things we are looking forward to or worrying about or are in some somewhere or other focused on, they too are going to have this mirage-like quality. When, when the future finally arrives, it will be this cascade of sights and sounds and sensations and impressions and assumptions, and, and it will blow through us yet again and very quickly become a memory. So there's a, there, in some sense, we, we need to recognize this different mode of being versus becoming. I mean, it's the becoming side of the equation, which is always taken in yet again by the illusion that if we could only right. you know, check all these boxes uh, in the future, we will be satisfied. Whereas the being side recognizes that in some basic sense, there is no real place to land beyond recognizing that 
this moment, with all that has been done and left undone, has to be, in some sense, the ground of our well-being. You know, whatever you could be, you have to be being in the in the very middle of writing the email. You would you really don't feel like writing. The good life requires that that you be able to locate some tranquility and acceptance and even happiness, even in the midst of that. It can't be predicated on getting it done or just getting through. Because then you're just getting through your life. You're getting through your day, and yeah. uh, it's just your it's, it's just treadmill time. Right. Right. It, it's you're so right that we don't we forget this for sort of years and decades at a time but it's also kind of immediately obvious that if it's all leading up to something what it's all leading up to what a single moment on your deathbed that makes no sense it's obvious Mm. that it makes no sense you know i think it i don't know if i can articulate this properly but it has something to do with a kind of fundamental misunderstanding or illusion or something about what what time is i suppose Right. It's this idea that time is a resource. It's a thing that we use that you have to sort of get the most out of the portion of time that you've been given. All of these things imply a separation between time and you. And yet, you know, as I try to go into in the book a little bit, it, it, there's a real sense in which it might make more sense to think of, to think of the, the idea that we are time, right? Mm. That, that, um, that you are a portion of time. And that, to me, speaks to the, this idea that it's not a dress rehearsal. It has to matter now if it's ever going to matter. The whole idea that you're sort of using this resource to get to some place of paradise in the future stops making any sense if you, if you think instead that, that we just are this portion of time. Well, then obviously it's got to be in the present that meaning is to be found. I attribute some of these ideas in the book to, to Heidegger, mm-hmm. who I sort of grappled with to try to understand this. But since the book was published i've i've found i think strikingly similar things in in some work commentaries on them um, on dogen the the mm-hmm. founder of soto zen who seems to have said some very similar things and wrote a essay that the title of which is translated as being time this idea that we just are time for me anyway it, it's almost at least sometimes triggers this this kind of bodily shift into a into the feeling that like it has to matter now i, I don't know if that makes sense when I put it into yeah. words. Yeah, well, and, and Dogen has the virtue of not having joined the Nazi party. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. It would have been... Uh, All in, things in, being in equal, but with him, yeah. Nicer to, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so you, yeah, you said you made one point about uh, it can't all be purpose toward getting safely to one's deathbed, you know, with one's priorities intact. And it's, yeah, it's, it's this instrumental uh, relationship to everything in life. It is pernicious. I, actually, you, you have some reflections on parenting and childhood that make this um, pretty poignant. Perhaps you, you, can, you can talk about it in, in light of um, how we tend to think about our kids as parents and uh, how strange that um, conception of living life as a means to some nebulous end uh, becomes in that context. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the only person to have made the observation, but but it's just this the degree to which we think about parenting or naturally fall into thinking about parenting as solely a matter of creating the most successful adults later on for any value of successful, right? This isn't necessarily a point about um, money and professional success. It's a point about treating your job as a parent as being the act of creating something in the future mm. to the exclusion of the experience of childhood and the experience of parenthood in the very moment itself. And I quote in the book, I think um, Adam Gopnik, the New Yorker writer, calling this the, the causal catastrophe, the idea that, that the only reason, question to ask about the quality of a childhood or of a parent-child relationship being what it's creating for the future. And as I recall, one of the examples uh, I think it was him who gave, you know, there is a question when it comes to violent video games, very controversial question, obviously, about whether this leads to sort of bad psychological traits uh, later on in life. But it's kind of only one part of the question. The other question is whether a childhood spent playing violent video games is or is not a good childhood. And it might be, I'm steering well clear of uh, having an opinion on that matter right now. But 
But the point is just that you can ask the question about how the quality of time is spent now, not only about whether it is adding up to certain outcomes. And if you don't, if you don't at least a little bit focus on what it's like to be on the experience right now, you sort of sap all the meaning and value from it. I'm mm-hmm. writing the book about, you know, still being in this very sort of productivity oriented mindset when our son was first born and finding myself, you know, n- not sufficiently absorbed in the experience of interacting with him because one part of me was trying to figure out whether he was meeting the developmental milestones that I'd read about in some book. And you know, these things matter. It's like you can't disregard them, but, but there's a real possibility for that to completely crush the experience itself. And I think it, you know, it's certainly not just parenthood, but it, but it becomes very Parenthood is a sort of a, te- a terrain where it seems mm. very, very easy to, to fall into it. Yeah, no, it's a very strange question to pose. What is the purpose of a good childhood, right? Like if, if the whole point of having a good childhood is to have a good adolescence, and the whole point of having a good adolescence is to have a, a good itself? young adulthood, and the whole point of a good young adulthood is to have a good middle age, I mean, you see where this is going. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it might make some sense if we lived forever, but yeah, we don't. Exactly. What do you what are your thoughts about um the occasionally vaunted ideal of uh having a anything like a work life balance? <laughs> the more I thought about and read about this topic, the the less I understood what it meant. So I don't know that I have anything particularly coherent to say. I think the most obvious thing that I do think about it is that this is a sort of classic example in traditional approaches to productivity and time management that looks like what it's offering is calm and peace and a sort of appropriate level of of um, involvement in different domains of life. But really in practice and in the way it gets internalized by people, just ups the pressure. It's the demand that you, you know, it's basically the demand that you have a, a sort of 100% uh, level of um, engage, appropriate engagement and accomplishment in your work and 100% in your life outside work. And, you know, that, that, that it ought to be possible to find a way to feel that you're giving all you would like to give to your work and all you would like to give to your family and your social life and your hobbies. And that if you're not managing it, you know, maybe sometimes the argument gets said that if it's not manage, you're not managing it, then it is a sort of issue with the societal arrangements and work policies and the rest of it. But usually, it's just that it's your fault <laughs> that mm. you haven't found the uh, you haven't found the right reserves of energy and self-discipline to um, to make it work. Again, the sufficiency problem kicks in, right? This 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 problem that um, if you get really good at at um, handling any given domain in your life, you, it will lead to the sense that there is more that you ought to be handling. If you get to the point where you do feel that you have a good work-life balance, I think it's, it's virtually inevitable that you'll feel some, some new pressure to do something else, to add another domain in which to excel. So it, all, it just seems like a very typical example of that, uh, that treadmill phenomenon. Yeah, I think we should probably acknowledge that People are in very different places here with respect to a few of these variables. So there, there are people for whom their work really is just a job because they, they need to make money to survive, but it's not something that is uh, truly aligned with how they, they would want to spend their time if they, if they didn't have to work. And then there are those of us who have managed through just sheer good luck to figure out a line of work that is, to some significant degree, similar or you know, if not identical to what we would want to do, even if we didn't have to do anything, and um, th- those strike me as fundamentally different circumstances in which to think about how one defends one's work from the rest of one's life and one's life from one's work. I mean, so, so for me, you know, just you know, I, I'm definitely among the luckiest here where, you know, what I do for work is what, in fact, I I want to do anyway. 
most of the time. And then it has this strange quality of bleeding into the rest of life because, you know, you know, selfishly I'm doing what I want to do a lot, and a lot of that is work. And so there's no real boundary between my work <laughs> and the rest of life. So the, the challenge for me is not to be a total workaholic where, you know, my working just competes with, you know, family time and you know, everything else that, that I also want to give attention to because it really, you know, I'm confronted by, you know, the zero-sum contest between things I genuinely want to do rather than the burden of work, which, um, you know, I know I have to do it, but I wish I didn't have to do it, where, where I, I, I have to think many people are, are caught. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like there is a similarity between the two situations, much as you're absolutely right, I think, that they're very, very different. They are both kind of um, confrontations with finitude and the discomfort of, of finitude. It's obviously a much better problem to have mm. if you're at risk of letting your deeply absorbing job squeeze out time with the family you love than if it's a terrible job that, you're, that you wish you didn't have to do that's, that's doing that. But I don't know, there is, a, there is a certain kind of through line between the different situations um, that I think is, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to me. There's obviously a sort of a kind of, it feels like existentialist philosophy or something, but there is a kind of internal shift that I think people do sometimes make when they are doing work that they don't find intrinsically fulfilling, that if they can sort of see the reason why they're doing it in the context of goals that are intrinsically fulfilling, if they can mm. truly believe that it's their best option right now to support the family that they want to support, then there is a, there is a level of sort of meaning that gets inculcated just through the, the choosing. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating. The, th the other thing it makes me want to ask you is whether this, this other phenomenon that one encounters, even if you are lucky enough to spend your work time doing things that you might choose to do otherwise, is the phenomenon whereby the fact that it is work, the fact that it is a, a job threatens to sometimes to erode the satisfaction of it. And the fact that you sort of have committed yourself to producing a book manuscript or putting out a regular podcast or whatever it might be starts to threaten to um, undermine the joy that you would otherwise take in the, in the activity. I don't know if you resonate with that at all. Well, well you know, there, inevitably there is a, a kind of treadmill effect even in doing what one loves to do the, the moment it becomes something that has to adhere to any kind of calendar or, you know, so, you know deadlines are deadlines even if you like what you're having to do. So there's that, but no, to to an unusual degree, now I'm I, I find myself in the spot of my work, my work and my my guilty pleasures are more and more indistinguishable. You know, it's, it's just it's really. I mean, if you just look at, I mean, just you know, take this conversation. You know, I, I, the reason why we're having it is because I wanted to read your book and I read it and I loved it, and now we're talking, right? So. It's like, you know, had I had this book been forced on me, which, you know, occasionally happens, then it's a slightly different experience. But it, this really was, you know, it, it was a book I felt like reading anyway, and now it has become this, the substance of my, quote, work. But it's really, a, you know, a uniquely privileged spot to be in to have found a way to do this. Yeah. But it's, it's still, you know, as, but as you point out, it, it does have this this other effect of throwing me up against the limits of all that I, I want to do and, and all that I feel I should do and just the, you know, the limited bandwidth for all of that. It does make a mockery of this other concept, which used to be pretty well enshrined in our culture, among, certainly among the most fortunate people. And that's the concept of leisure, right? And, and you, <laughs> this is something you, you analyze in the book. We have kind of lost sight of leisure and and the, the whole point of it even the most fortunate people have especially I mean, when you look at how the the rich certainly among the rich knowledge workers uh, if you look at how they spend their time th these are not people who are especially good at downtime this is you have people working by as measured by the clock more hours than than anyone else in society on some level they're they're choosing to work this hard uh, and not all of them are in precisely my spot of doing almost entirely things they want to do anyway. 
but they're you know in in most cases presumably they're they're free to do less work and they're not accomplishing it and leisure has become this it's something that we feel that we either either need to justify or we just fail to even try to justify it whereas in previous generations that kind of inversion of priorities would be unthinkable i mean the point of of being rich and lucky in generations past was so that you could enjoy leisure <laughs> right Right. Yeah. And it does, it, it's such a strange mix. I'm thinking about like what the causes of that are. It's such a strange mixture of, I think, economic forces sort of glomming on to this inbuilt tendency that we have to want to be unlimited, to want to get to the very end of workload that, that we're brought and all the technological reasons that that workload has become. Uh, ever more functionally infinite so that there's no possibility of getting to the end of it and then the way that that becomes like a status symbol it's kind of embarrassing on some level to to seem to have leisure and to be very busy is i'm not saying anything uh original here but to to, to be to be busy is a is a sign that you must be in demand and, and that you must be uh, uh living your life in a in a useful fashion and then as well, you get this very strange phenomenon where leisure itself becomes subject to the, the, to the instrumental imperative, where it doesn't really count as a good use of your time off if you're not at least building some skill mm-hmm. or resting and engaging in, quote, self-care so that you can be a better worker or more productive in your, in your job or, uh, you know, at least meeting your fitness goals or something, right? There's something very there's something very counter to the spirit of the times in just um, in just sort of tinkering around with some hobby because you sort of enjoy doing it and not particularly caring whether you whether you even get better at it or manage to turn it into a income stream or hmm. or something. There's one version of multitasking around which I'm uh, I think unabashedly uh, positive now, which is and it's I mean, this is going to sound self-serving because it's speaking directly to what is increasingly my career here, but listening to audio, listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks while doing something else that would otherwise be merely instrumental has changed, I think, many people's relationship to whatever it is, the long commute, the doing of the dishes, the, the, you know, just doing something which is inevitable, but not the point of one's day. When you're listening to a podcast or to a book or something that really is adding value to what you're doing with your mind, that strikes me more and more as an unalloyed good. I mean, it's, it is, it's made me, by default, patient with a, let's say, a drive that takes a half hour longer than planned for, right? It's like there's, there's no the sense of rushing provided there's no real urgency out there in the world. It's just completely evaporated for me because... I'm now virtually always listening to something that I really do want to listen to. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing in your life and, or if you see any um, uh, unhappy little uh, caveat to add to that, that rosy picture I just painted. No, I totally know what you mean. I mean, this is a, I defer to you on this, but there's a neuroscientific point about different channels of attention here, I think, mm. and, and the way that, uh, and combining certain combinations that, that work and combinations that don't and yeah i mean that has been my experience too um i just wish that a better way of taking notes from audio mm-hmm. could be uh, devised that would uh, that would be the next level of improvement for that experience i guess the little caveat is is just that i think you can occasionally condition yourself to think of a task as as more boring or tedious by only ever doing it in the context of a distraction mm-hmm. from that task. I, I, I'm not a particularly regular runner, but I did stop listening to audio when I was running in, in the park and find that actually it had the effect of making the, the running a little bit more absorbing, a mm-hmm. little bit less uh, aggravating to do. And my, my totally sort of proven theory is that somewhere if you keep telling yourself that you can only get through something if you're distracting yourself from it, it leads to you thinking of it as more unpleasant than it otherwise would be. Sort of yeah. the same principle of why you maybe shouldn't always hand out reward stickers and reward prizes to kids for doing chores, because then it makes the chore into something you would only do for the reward. 
but I no, I totally agree. I mean, podcasts, audiobooks have uh, totally transformed all sorts of periods of time that would otherwise be yeah. relatively meaningless. Yeah. Well, it does. It comes back to the point of meditation and mindfulness. It is in fact true that anything you do can become a effectively a, a meditation that is as good as any other meditation. So whether that's doing the dishes or driving in traffic, but um, it is easier certainly to um, have that epiphany that there really is no problem doing these things if you're eking out another half hour or so on the thing you really felt like listening to in the first place. <laughs> it's um, the training wheels on one's mind that uh, yes. come in handy. How do you think, you know, having thought about our, our relationship to time as much as you have, how do you um, think about your relationship personally to the clock and the calendar? Is there anything you're doing or not doing to make that um, illusion more or less uh, transparent I mean, for you? My suspicion is that it's true of all books about that purport to offer advice on things that they are on some level just chronicles of the author's own struggles and issues and hang-ups. And that's certainly true. Uh, this one, I mean, I, I have sort of changed in lots of ways and become a lot more sort of relaxed in my attitude towards time and to, to getting things done uh, without sort of pursuing this illusion of total time mastery. But it's a constant, I'm constantly sort of having to remind myself of some of these principles. I think one of the most, um, for me, one of the most interesting aspects of that is the whole sort of question of planning and the planning out of of life and the planning out of one's day. Again, this is something that differs between people. And like you, I, I imagine I'm someone who has a lot of autonomy over what I do at which times of day and which days of the week. And it's a sort of, it's completely fascinating to me the, the way that if I sort of sit down to try to plan out a day, I will fall, if I'm not careful, straight back into that mindset that what I'm actually doing in that moment is somehow deciding how the day is going to unfold, mm. as opposed to, you know, giving a statement of intentions about how I'd quite like it to unfold if lots of things lined up in the right way. And then having this experience, if you fall into that mindset of spending the whole day kind of with needless extra psychological conflict in your life, because guess what, you know, reality is unfolding as it is unfolding, and your plan is just one sort of one voice in that uh, in that cacophony, and and uh, things keep happening that weren't part of your plan. And so, I'm not sure I'm answering your question as something that I've figured out, or rather something that I haven't figured out. But like working out how to think through the sort of proactive part of that, the way in which you sort of do want to play a role in determining how your day unfolds or how a year unfolds, for that matter, while also acknowledging fully the situation that you are really in, which is that you're not the, the dictator of reality, certainly not when small children hmm. are involved. That to me is fascinating. And I've sort of, I have seen through what I think I was up to when I was really in my most sort of rigid and inflexible planning stage. It is that feeling that if you could only plan out the day precisely and have it go your way, you would be, you would somehow have, have achieved this position of being on top of time, being no longer constrained by reality. But that is not, that is not how it goes. So that's, mm. that's sort of a constant struggle. Yeah, there's, uh, again, one of these myopic misappropriations of one's energy that, that creeps in here. I mean, the rigidity that one experiences in trying to adhere to a schedule when confronted with some spontaneous and uh, you know, although eminently foreseeable interruption of that plan, <laughs> we're not seeing how the clenched fist of trying to hold on to one's plan is degrading in the most direct way our quality of life in the present. And we, we have this experience again and again and again and again. And it, what is in fact true is, you know, all the while we're trying to adhere to our plans, we're living as a, an uptight, unspontaneous, fairly cantankerous person who, who is uh, you know, propagating his stress to uh, the people he loves most, presumably, in this world on a daily basis. And so it's a, um, you know, I, for me, the, the salient point 
increasingly for me is, is, is the feeling of rushing. Whenever I feel that I'm rushing, I mean, one thing is, is obvious that the, that feeling of contraction and you know, whatever you know, hasty changes in my behavior it's, it's inspiring it virtually has no material effect on the time it's going to take me to get anywhere. You know, it's, I mean, maybe we're talking about my getting someplace two minutes earlier than I otherwise would, you know, rushing all the while. And so, but yet it so obviously degrades one's quality of life and, and feeling of well-being to say nothing of how one is in interacting with anyone who gets in one's way while one's rushing. For me, that's a very, um, that's a clear trigger for resetting one's relationship to life now. And uh, so the, the half-life of that is, has certainly diminished for me. Are there any, any other bright lines in your life that you have recognized to be uh, the, uh, the hallmark of an unbalanced relationship to time? I mean, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I, the point you make about, um, about the, the scant benefits of, uh, of rushing to, to do things and, and making almost no extra speed as a result, what I have really noticed as a, perhaps a more generalized version of that point is that the number of things that I will do in order to avoid discomfort, the discomfort of having to let things take the time they take in, in your example, but other forms of discomfort too, the discomfort of knowing that the decks are filling up with stuff while I'm working on my most important priority, all sorts of other things. The level of discomfort that can, the avoidance of which can um, completely send me off from my intentions and my highest goals for the day or my plans for that hour is, is just incredibly small. There's just a, a very, something only needs to feel a, a very little bit difficult or a very little bit aggravating in terms of bringing me up against my limits or the limits of my control over the pace of things or anything like that for me to be tempted to just like blow it off and spend the next two hours in some completely wasted activity and becoming aware of that has actually been really useful for mm. me you know becoming aware of the degree to which you know you can handle most of the discomfort that one habitually spends one's days trying to trying to avoid that that has felt like some sort of extraordinary change for me because uh, i think i spent many many years trying to do everything i could to not feel those kinds of minor discomforts there's there's one point you make in the book about the um the consequences of controlling one's time so as to be most efficient and most uh, you know in line with one's priorities which becomes hostile to much of what is good in life especially when you when you look at just what it now takes in the modern world to socialize successfully with one's friends you know it's just that there, we we have um so much of our our efficiency and our convenience and it, it, in other modes just actually getting what we want out of life i mean just using our attention the way we think we want to use it in, in the present has led to a for many of us an increasingly atomized way of being in the world where i mean to, to take one example i don't think you use this in the book but i can still remember what it was like to live in a world where you just picked up the phone and called people uh without first scheduling those phone calls by text or by email and now that's not the way i live with with the with a few exceptions i mean you know calling my wife or my mother i mean that you know those are unscheduled but calling someone on the phone just cold calling them even a friend now more and more has the character of just like showing up at their house and ringing the doorbell <laughs> right you know, unannounced right and that's that's a strange change and it's definitely w weighted toward the side of less contact, less spontaneity, and I think for many people, you know, greater loneliness. Yeah, I mean, go back far enough and actually showing up at people's doors would have been fine yeah. as well, yeah. right? I mean, I think it speaks to this very, very strong weight that we, that we put on the idea that the ideal here is, is total personal control over one's own time. Obviously, this is out of reach of many, 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 many people, but that it's the sort of cultural ideal and the idea that you might live a life where you surrendered to the demands of other people on your time, that, that we, we only see that as, as bad, right? And I mean, I, there are lots of contexts where it is bad and lots of contexts where people's ability to live fulfilling lives are 
damaged by the degree to which they have to oblige the, the whims of other people. But the idea that there might be something good also in sort of surrendering to those rhythms, to being able to be interrupted by a phone call to all the rest of this is, I think, is a, it's a missing piece from, from that way of, of thinking. And it, it speaks also when you bring up the issue of like, you know, scheduling, trying to schedule a social event with friends. We've, we've got to this situation where we're so sort of out of sync with each other. The rhythms are so not given by any kind of communal tradition and so entirely given, you know, either by our employer or if we are, you know, independent self-employed people by our own plans for our lives. None of these things ever have, there's no reason to expect them ever to mesh with the, mm. with the rhythms of the people we'd quite like to have a beer with. And so you get this absurd situation where, you know, people in really, people at the bottom of the ladder in terms of their jobs working on kind of algorithmically generated unpredictable schedules have these kind of lives where they can never coordinate to have a, a sort of richly fulfilling social life. And also, you know, all the laptop toting, self-employed, more privileged people at the other end of things are in functionally the same situation. Mm -hmm. They've all got their own schedules and can never arrange to have those kind of social times. It's a, I mean, I'm not sure if I wanted to be provocative, I would say it, it's an argument for certain, for certain forms of social life that have their uh, sort of strongest expression in various religious traditions, right? I mean, the idea that, the idea that there are certain rules of temporal organization that, we, that yeah. we just follow and surrender to rather than trying to like, get in there and exert agency over. You know, there, there's the, the rationale for something like a Sabbath is not hard to locate here because it's, I mean, this, this doesn't necessarily cover the, the social piece all that much, but it covers the, the contemplative one and the, and the return of spontaneity. Right. I mean, if, you, if you're just going mm -hmm. to have a day where it, by definition, can't be about getting things done, you know, and then you can see what emerges in that space. That's pretty interesting. And I, you know, I think having a calendar of holidays and other events, which are in some sense foisted upon you, whether you want them or not, and then you surrender to them and, and then you, you discover the community that's waiting for you in that frame. Yeah, that's, it's easy to see that as a corrective to what we're all managing to do on our own with an endless queue on Netflix and a growing pile of books to read and our families who are, are riding along with us in, in our houses, which have uh, increasingly become to resemble spaceships in times of global pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, um, <laughs> there are social norms and, and structures which we you know, some of which we've inherited and, and uh, need to um, give a modern, non-embarrassing gloss to, and some of which I think we need to invent, which uh, would punctuate all this. Yeah, there's, there's something so powerful about that idea that you, you put down your tools and stop working when the sun sets on Friday or on Saturday, mm -hmm. that you leave your work task in the monastery and go to prayers when the bell rings, right? It's just, it's just there's no sense that you're going to have got to the end of anything, that you're going to have completed anything. So it's a way of sort of, it's almost arbitrary in a way. It doesn't, doesn't matter as long as it's sort of, as long as it's fairly, fairly fixed. Just that idea that no, you, that's when you stop. And actually some of the most powerful approaches to daily time management do have this, this sense in them of like, okay, you first of all have to just fix the pocket of time that you're going to use for work or for a certain kind of work and then just stop when that time comes and let go of this notion that you're going to get through a certain ambitious to-do list by the end of the day and so it has that sort of monastic feel mm -hmm. of just sort of imposing a rhythm where there would otherwise not be one it would otherwise just be a sort of insane quest for time mastery to sort of try to win the battle with time or something what is your relationship to all of the books you're never going to read? <laughs> you mean because there's because there's an infinite number of yeah. them, and uh, yeah. and my time is not my time is uninfinite. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Are you, I can imagine. So, so one thing that changed for me once I recognized there were there was a functionally infinite number of books worth reading is that I became 
far less uh, slavishly committed to finishing a book once I started it. It's a, you know, there was, you know, so many books now have only been partially read because, for whatever reason, they were not uh, holding my attention. And I, there's certainly a downside to this because you can you can fail to discover how good a book ultimately was, you know, and it just took a long time to get started. But when you put any one book up against infinity, <laughs> it's, it really, you know, it, it does have to pay its, its dividends, uh, you know, rather soon to justify taking, you know, a day or, or a week or more of your life. Yeah, it's, um, I have not reached a peace of mind with, with regard to this. I, I, my, um, my response is my, my reaction to feeling like there's more books that I want to read is usually to acquire those books and then put them in a pile yeah. on my desk and, and not get to them. I mean, I think there's that question of that downside that you mentioned of wanting to sort of move on very swiftly from things that don't seem to be worth your while and then missing out on the, the things that actually would have held your attention. I think there are ways that I now I think about it that I sort of have dealt with that in certain ways. In the context of books, I, I don't do this myself, but I know that there are people who talk about, you know, sort of set, setting an arbitrary number of pages before which you will not abandon mm. a book so that you sort of, you push past the sort of self-indulgent part that wants to throw something onto the scrap heap. But at the same time, you're not sort of doing that thing where you're somehow obliged to get to the end of every book you start. When it comes to articles and things that I sort of, reading matter that I tend to encounter online, there I have sort of got my systems working and there it's not to do with an arbitrary amount but to do with of, of, of content, but to do with putting them into a, a read later app mm -hmm. and and not getting to them for like days or weeks. And then you then you find this extraordinary effect where like ten percent of the things that I bookmarked as absolutely essential and needing my attention and probably really relevant to my work or to my life. Turns out, like ten percent of them are still still seem to be calling to me mm -hmm. after a, after a few weeks. Yeah. So I don't know, yeah. I don't know how you'd adapt that to book reading, but uh, but I think there's there are ways of sort of filtering. But no, I have not reached a, 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 a happy situation with that part of my finitude. Well, all I can say is you've contributed to the um, the benefit of others here by uh, in two ways: one by writing a book that is eminently worth reading, but uh, also by writing a short book that can be read. In really a you know a day or two, you know, and this um, gives further motivation to my thesis that most books really are too long, and they're, they're as long as they are based on the financial needs of publishers, not so much the the artistic or intellectual needs of their authors, because you can you know printing a 150 page book is more or less the same expense as printing a 400 page book, but you can't sell it for nearly as much. And that's the, the dirty little secret of publishing. <laughs> yeah, whereas actually, if I, if I had been able to convey whatever benefit there is in this book in a tenth of the time, a tenth of the words, I, I would probably, like, by rights, I ought to be able to charge much more for it, but you wouldn't be able yeah, to. Exactly. <laughs> You'd only yeah. be able to sell it for much less. So, yeah. Yes, no, if, if, you get, if you get as short as I've gotten with some of my books, you hear from people who are quite um, charmed by the fact that they... Um, they managed to read the whole book while standing or sitting in a bookstore. And this is this is when people <laughs> went went to bookstores and uh, then put it back on the shelf. And they were <laughs> strangely, they imagine I'm going to be overjoyed at this news. They didn't even have to buy the book to get it to get the benefit from it. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine you're not so happy to hear that. Yeah, but uh, very much like having written books where the there there can be this. I think it was Edgar Allan Poe talked about the the benefits of a of the short story, one of them being the, the unity of effect where you can, you can read it in a single sitting. It's nice to know that if someone starts your book, if it's short enough, they're, they're probably going to finish it. Whereas, you know, I've had the experience with some longer books where I'm dealing with people who I can tell have only read the first chapter, you know, or maybe the first chapter and the, and the afterward of a mm -hmm. three, you know, 300 page book. And it's just, that part is frustrating to, especially when you're dealing with something that is contentious and and argument-driven, but uh, there's no such problem with your current efforts. So um, I, uh, I recommend our, our listeners seek it out, and it's 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Thank you so much for your time, Oliver. It's been great speaking with you. Likewise. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. <laughs>